This morning's text is from Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse number 21. I appreciate so much our music ministry leading as they have this morning. I was afraid for a moment I was going to have to ask A.B. to lead for us today, and and I got to thinking we can only sing the Alabama fight song so often without falling apart and splitting the church. So uh, anyway, I appreciate uh, what our music and worship ministry has done today. But speaking of A.B., he told me the story this past week of a couple of Texans, a husband and wife. They were going into the bank, and as they're going in, they were bickering with each other. And uh, they walked in, began to conduct their business, and all of a sudden somebody broke in to rob the bank. And the robber said, don't look at me. If you do, you will lose your life. And all of a sudden, one person looked up, and he pulled out his pistol and shot him, and they were gone. And another person, he took them out, and then another person, and finally came up to this couple and said, don't look at me. And so they didn't. They looked, he looked around. He said, did anyone else notice me and look at me? And the woman said, well, I think my husband got a good look at you. <laughs> That's not as bad as the story Jerry Clower told one time. He uh, told about this fellow who lived in a county in Mississippi and had never left the county his entire life. He was born and raised in that county, worked in that county, and was near retirement in the county, but his son grew up and went to, I think, Mississippi College and got an accounting degree and went to Nashville to go to work. And he decided on his father's birthday that he was going to bring his father to Nashville for his first trip outside the county. And so he got to downtown Nashville and never seen buildings so tall. In fact, Jerry said his mouth was open agape and surprised so much he sunburnt the roof of his mouth. And they got into one uh, hotel building. They went up a few flights in the elevator. He'd never been on an elevator before. And uh, they went up a couple flights, and an older woman with a walker got on to the elevator, went up a couple more flights of stairs and got off, and she stepped off. The older woman did, and the doors closed and opened up immediately, and the most beautiful woman in the southeast United States got onto the elevator. And the man looked at his son and said, son, I don't know much about these elevators, but I know we need to get your mother on one of them. (laughs) Knock it off. Anyway, you know, in our relationships and our walk with God and our walk with one another, it's often the place where the need for change surfaces most often. Do you ever struggle with change, the changes that you need to make? I've got good news for you here in Mark chapter 1. Here, Jesus spends one day in Capernaum, and it's never the same. He resolves an awful lot of the trouble that people face. In verses 21 and 22, he resolves troubles of the mind. Look there with me. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately... On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus taught. There's a problem with ignorance of the mind, and Jesus took care of it. In fact, in Mark, he's called teacher 15 times, and it says, or 12 times, excuse me, and 15 times it says that he taught. Now, he's not like the rabbis. The rabbis were not certain about much of anything, so they would quote 
precedent that had come before them. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus wouldn't quote rabbis. He would quote himself. And oftentimes you'll find, especially in the Gospel of John, he wouldn't do like the others with an amen. We say amen, and they usually said amen at the end of a statement to affirm God affirms it so. That's what amen means. Jesus would not make that statement at the end of his statements. He would begin them with amen. He taught with authority. Jesus Christ is the kind of Lord that brings light where there's darkness, and he does so with authority, expecting the earth to hear his voice. And so he took care of troubles of the mind. You know, there's coming a day, according to Isaiah 11, 9, when the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the seas cover the land. There will be that much knowledge of the Lord in the earth when Jesus Christ comes again. And so his teaching ministry here is a possibility for today and a marvelous opportunity for the future. It foreshadows what will happen. So he resolves the troubles of the mind, but then he resolves the troubles of the soul in verse 23 through 28. Now, there may be some that struggle with the notion of demon possession, but Jesus didn't. In fact, his enemies accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Now, that makes no sense, of course. But they acknowledged that he performed miracles and exorcisms. His enemies did. Eyewitnesses said so, even his enemies. Verse 23, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, another name for a demon, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. One day Jesus Christ is going to perform the final and ultimate exorcism of the earth. And he is going to cast out not only evil, impersonal evil and sin, he will cast out the devil in his minions. And all the host, and all the temptation, and all the sorrow, and all the deception that goes with that crowd will be gone and completely eliminated one day. And Jesus Christ is foreshadowing here what he will deliver in Revelation 12. Now Jesus comes here to this place in the synagogue, and I find that his exorcism is rather simple. There are no incantations, there are no gyrations, there's no production, there's no theater. He just simply announces with the word, be gone, leave him, and he is gone. And he commands that they not uh, speak. In fact, later, he would do so in verse 32 through 34. He would not let them speak because they knew him. And some have been confused by that. Scholars call this the Markin secret. And they gesticulate and speculate over why Jesus commanded folks to be silent about healings and about exorcisms. Well, he actually explains this himself in Mark chapter 4. We don't need to speculate. In verse number 24, he said, Take heed of Mark 4. Take heed what you hear with the same measure you use. It will be measured to you. 
To you who hear, more will be given. For to him who has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. The crowd in the cities and towns and villages where he preached were not ready with an appreciation and love of truth, and so he withheld it from them. But for those who appreciated truth, he gave them more. And the same is true today. You can have two people in the same worship service sitting next to one another, a husband and wife, and one gets it and the other does not. Same sermon, same worship, same text, same words, same year after year after year, and yet one grows and magnifies the Lord and the other one stays the same. Why is that? According to the Word, one has a great appreciation for truth and hears it with the intention of obeying it, and the other one's somewhat casual and isn't much interested, but is simply going through the motions and is not actively listening. And Jesus knew that about where He was. Listen, they were full of religion, but they were not full of godliness. And Jesus had to prep them even more than John the Baptist did to get them ready for more truth. Well, Jesus resolved the trouble of the soul. But then he resolved troubles in the home. Verse 29, As soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother... Now, if Simon's wife had a mother, what does that mean about Simon or Peter? Was he a single man? He was married. Well, that wrecks an awful lot of theory about succession to Peter, doesn't it? So Simon's wife's mother lay sick with the fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and looked, took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Women in that day were not viewed very highly, as they should be. They were not given their due. But when Jesus Christ comes into the world, in those societies where women are denigrated, they find in Christ they're elevated. And that's what we find in the text here. In fact, men would wake up in the morning, many men would, and pray, Dear God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, thank you that I'm not a dog, and thank you that I'm not a woman. It's an awful thing to pray, but that's what some of them would pray. And they felt that men should be punished for teaching them the law. In fact, rabbis would not teach them the word. And that is not the position of the New Testament. And I wish some in the Middle East would hear that. But this is what Jesus does with. Simon Peter's mother-in-law. He comes to her and heals her. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, there are 17 miracles. This happens to be the shortest one of them all. And it foreshadows one day what Jesus Christ will do with all sickness and physical suffering. He will eliminate it and exercise it like He will the devil and demons. That's what Jesus Christ shall do. There will be no sickness and there will be no pain. Now I know some of you in your heart and mind cringe over the thought of death visiting your loved one, especially if your loved one died in an accident or tragic physical circumstances. I want to assure you that if your loved one knew Jesus Christ as Savior, your loved one is not suffering any longer. For a moment, death visited your loved one, but it's gone. Never to return Grieve no longer over that. It's all in the hands of Christ. And just as we come to Christ and are made new creations, at the cross, death came to Christ and He transformed it into a new creation. He is Lord over all, even this. So Jesus resolved trouble in the home and the soul and the mind, but then He resolved trouble in the city. 
In verse 32, the evening had come and the sun had set and they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed and the whole city was gathered together at the door and I dream of that for the Athens-Clark County metropolitan region. And then he shows himself abundant and adequate and sufficient for every exigency and circumstance of human life. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. I'm sure he didn't even break a sweat. He is thoroughly capable of meeting the needs of the city and taking care of every one of them. There is not a city in all the earth that intimidates Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all, even our city. He's not intimidated. He's adequate for all. So, as the poet said, Jesus can solve any problem. The tangles of life undo. There's nothing too hard for Jesus. There's nothing He cannot do. Jesus Christ can resolve the troubles of life. Jesus Christ offers hope for change. And He is the world's only hope for meaningful, lasting change. Now that leads us to a question. And it's, um, it's a little painful. And it is this. If Christ is able to change lives, then why do so many Christians struggle? If Christ and His ways make a difference, why are some who claim to know Him no different today? Why hasn't Christianity or Christ made a difference in some Christians? And I want to answer that question in a few brief ways. Number one, how do you know it hasn't? How do you know that? The truth is, Christ may have made a difference in someone's life, and if He were not there, they might be worse than what they are. Imagine that. Which is entirely possible. And so, with your own eyes, you may not have seen growth and development in someone that claims Christ, but it may very well be without Christ and His ways and His church and His Word, perhaps they've not gotten much better, but they would be worse you see, sometimes teenage and adult children have this problem with their Christian parents. And so they repudiate the faith. I've never understood that. Have you? I really haven't. Because I think Jesus should be judged on His own merits, not the quality of some of His followers. That's simply not fair. There are some doctors that are not worthy of a visit, but I still visit one. There are dentists that are not worthy of trust in in uh, payment, but the truth is is that we still visit them, insurance agents and, and a variety of others. Why is it that everyone else gets to stand on their own merit, but we don't let Jesus stand on His? I, I've never understood that. So my question to you is, if it appears Christ has not made a difference in someone else's life and you're rejecting the Lord on that basis, my question is, how do you know Christ has not made a difference? Before you start criticizing, a follower of Christ, let me ask you to consider a few things. One, imagine from where he or she started. If you're bothered with your parents and their faith, remember you didn't watch them grow up. You know what I've discovered? Parents that have come up in the faith and struggle with parenthood still are usually a significant improvement over their parents. So how about we give them a break instead of criticizing them? 
Imagine or take note of where they came from. Second, remember they aren't the monsters that you have imagined them to be. You know, when we're hurt, we take people who hurt us and we exaggerate how much of a monster they are. We, we turn them into monsters is what we do. And we turn them into a mental caricature that really oftentimes is not fair. In fact, we're certain that they happen to be the twin brother or the twin sinner, sister of Satan. It's what we oftentimes do. And I must say to you, I'm not sure that's fair. If someone knows Christ as Savior, there's something neat going on in their lives, and, and it might take some mental and emotional discipline to reduce the monstrosity that you've turned them into being, but let's give them a break, because here's why. Somewhere along the line, you have hurt someone, and in their mind, you're a monster too. Someone may be thinking that about you, and it's not fair. It's not accurate. So how, how, about, we, how about we book the monstrosity and the uh, awfulness of some? Then, the truth is, he or she could be worse if it were not for Christ. Now, I do want to say to you, and I need to be careful here, and I, I'm, I'm having a hard time untangling this, so I'm just going to let it go and trust you with it. And that is, if you have been seriously hurt, you don't have to keep that a secret. If you've been abused, if you've been physically harmed, you don't need to do that. I'm not talking necessarily about that, although some of this may apply. So if you need help, we want you to get help, and I don't want you to minimize serious injuries or wounds, but that's why we're here. And if your judgment and thinking is cloudy, it might be good to sit down and talk with someone and help, let, uh, let them help you think through it. So first, how do you know the Christian faith has not made a difference? But second, the reason some have not changed, though they name Christ, is that some have really never met Christ. Scripture is unmistakably clear about the relationship between faith in Christ and work and character. Jesus said in Matthew 7.16, Matthew 7.20, Matthew 12.33, you shall know them by their fruits. In other words, the truth is, is that when we know Christ that transforms our heart and we start producing a life that begins to increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly look like Jesus. However, there are some that fit the profile of Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. And Jesus uses a very reasonable, obvious illustration that may have surprised some. It may surprise you. He said, figs do not come from thistles, and grapes do not come from thorn bushes. Grapes come from where? Grapevines. Figs come from where? Fig trees. If something claims to be a fig tree, yet it produces thistles, then what is it? Well, it certainly isn't a fig tree. And it really is just as simple as that. Now, I'm not claiming perfection for Christians, and I'm not saying that if someone is not perfect, he or she does not know Christ. But what the Bible does teach is that when we come to Christ, over the months and over the years, there is an increasing and growing godliness. John will say humility and love, obedience, victory over the temptations of the world. So you need to really understand this. It is not merely those who say they are Christian that are Christian. It is those who say they are Christian and increasingly live like Christ 
who are Christians. So, it could be that a person has not changed because he or she has not given Jesus the opportunity. They're just simply mouthing religious words. But there's a third explanation, and that is, we are at war. We are in a war. Mark chapter 1, verse 23, the location of this war is very, very surprising. Did you see what it said in verse 23 of Mark 1? Now, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. There was a man in the place of worship. There was a man in the church of Judaism that had an unclean spirit. Well, I mean, if he's talking about a house of ill repute or talking about some kind of um, place of sinfulness, I can understand that. But we're talking about a place of worship. Vance Habner said, folks, Satan is not only opposing churches, he's joining them. And his malevolence and his skill reach that deeply. He's at war. He's very skilled. He's very crafty. And I hate to admit it, but he's been very effective with some. And so the reason some do not change is that, or do not evidence the change that will satisfy you is that they are in a war. And so bullets are flying and bombs are exploding and shrapnel is piercing flesh and bones. They are in a war, and it very well may be that there is a lack of change because that person simply has not learned to fight the spiritual warfare. So be patient with them. There's a fourth reason, and that is this. Every miracle in the Bible began with a problem. We find an awful lot of demonism here, demon possession. We find the need for healing. We find darkness. And every one of these gave Jesus Christ the opportunity to display His saving and overcoming victorious power is what they did. And that is true about every miracle in the Bible. Every miracle in the Bible has at least one thing in common with the other miracles in the Bible. And that is this. Every miracle in the Bible began with a problem. And so problems become the context where God does some of His greatest works. And so the problems in Christian lives are an opportunity for God to pull off something great in their lives. And so that's something that we, we need to learn. There's a fifth reason, and that is victory is an event and a process. It can be an event with many things, but sometimes it's a process as well. Psalms 138, verse 8, The Lord will complete that which concerns me. Do not forsake the work of your hands. In Psalms 138, verse 8, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you shall complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The implication there is, is that from receiving Christ until the day we leave this earth, God initiates a process that takes a lifetime of change. Now, some changes are immediate, and they are spontaneous. In fact, when you come to Christ, the most remarkable change is that your status before God is remarkably, radically altered. The moment you come to Christ, Jesus Christ takes responsibility for your sins because of His cross. He says, let me take responsibility for that. And then He says to you, I'm willing to give you my righteousness. So I appear before the Father as the sinner and the guilty one. You appear before the Father as the holy one, the blessed one, the favored one. And that's one reason today, during our invitation today, you need to hurry and quickly give your life to Christ. God would love to do that in you. In fact, He crucified and sacrificed His Son 
to pay for your death penalty so that great exchange and that great transformation can take place, if nothing else, in your status before God. And when He comes into your life, He, he enacts that status change, that transformation, and you can never lose it. It's permanent and it's forever. And so that forgiveness and that change is instantaneous, it's permanent, and it is eternal simply for your faith in Christ. But some changes require a process of construction. In other words, we come to Christ and we're a building project. Uh, Ruth uh, Bell Graham, Billy Graham's wife, passed away in 2007. And I want you to look at her headstone. What a remarkable statement she has there. Do you see it? Ruth Bell Graham, end of construction, thank you for your patience. What a marvelous statement. She got it right. The truth is, is that we are under construction until we see the Lord. Let's be patient with each other. It reminds me of the old children's song that Bill and Gloria Gaither made popular many years ago. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. That's one reason we sometimes struggle with change. But there's a sixth reason. And that is, God has His reasons for letting us fail. Apparently, we need failure. Romans 8.28, I think, implies this to some extent. It says, God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, it doesn't say all things are good. And it does not say all things work together for good for everyone. There's some qualifications. There's some bad things that God causes to work together for good for some select folk. And that is those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Could it be that you've experienced so much difficulty because God is waiting for you to respond to His call to come to Jesus Christ and for you to begin a life of love? And the only way He can get your attention is to allow you to suffer. Is that possible? I mean, you wouldn't listen to your teachers, you wouldn't listen to your coaches, wouldn't listen to your parents. No one could tell you a thing. You're just plain stubborn. You're just stubborn. I think the Apostle Paul was that way, and so God struck him down on the Damascus Road, not merely to give him an experience, but because that's what he needed to get his attention, and it could be you've been thrust down because you won't listen. That may not be your case. You have to be discerning about this. It's not applicable to everyone who suffered, but I do worry oftentimes about such. All the sweet words of human vocabularies are not enough, though, for me to articulate how good God is. God is good. And I, I, I get frustrated as a pastor and have, and I've spoken often since I first started, and I've never been satisfied, I think, with any message I've ever preached because my heart and my mind and my experience with God are far greater than I could ever tell with my language. 
He is so much more than what I can say. But what I will say is, God is good. God is full of love, grace, mercy, and faithfulness. In fact, these things are new every morning. And because of them, we're not consumed, Jeremiah said. So when I struggle, I place a certain interpretation on my struggles. And I've had to. I've hurt. I've suffered the divorce of my folks, the early and tragic What appears to be senseless death of my mother from hard living when I was young. A difficult step-parent situation. Handicaps in my family. So I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you from someone who is saying this, but not saying this in a vacuum. I'm coming out of a place of enormous hurt. And suffering. Maybe not as much as you, maybe more than some, less than others. I interpret my problems and troubles as an expression of the love and the goodness of God. And I have to. My problems are a proof that God loves me. And that He is good. And here's what I've concluded. I have concluded that I am better off with problems than I am without them. Do you know something? Had it not been for some of the devastating struggles I suffered when I was 16, I probably would have never turned to Christ. I don't know if the hurt that pulsates through my heart nearly on a daily basis... I don't know that if I had to live without those, that I would seek the Lord as hard and as fast as I do. And and I want you to understand, I hope I grow one day to where I seek God and I follow Him and pursue Him harder than what I do. But I hope I do it one day simply out of love and faith. Because quite frankly, right now, I seek Him not because I'm very spiritual. I pursue hard after Him, but not because I'm very loving or grateful. I hope to do that more. But I pursue Him and seek Him because I need Him. Do you understand? I've got to have Him or I collapse. I fall in on myself. And that is the function of problems in my life. Now this comes as a startling revelation to some people. But God does not value American values of comfort nearly as much as Americans do. God has never bought into the modern version, at least, of the American dream. God has a different view and vision of your life. And that is transformation. And God will afflict you and aggravate you and persecute you, if I can put it that way, until He has shaped you into the image of His Son. So may I suggest you just get pliable and go with the program. Wayne Watson reflected this in one of his 
songs many years ago. And he makes a good point that between now and the time we see Jesus and see Him face to face, God is doing a construction project on us and changing us to where we increasingly look more and more like Christ. And in one song he said, One day Jesus will call my name. As the days go by, I hope I don't stay the same. I want to get so close to Him that it's no big change on the day when Jesus calls my name. I don't want, to ha- I don't want Him to have to hurry the construction project to finish me. I want there to be just one more step to take. I wish I was more like Him. But God, in this day, is building a fighting force, not vacationers. And you need to know when you come to Christ, this is what you're signing up for. When you come today, you're coming to a God who in His Son will begin to reconstruct you. He will never leave you alone. He doesn't intend to. Now there are some at this point they may doubt that they've ever been saved because of a lack of change in their life. It is true, if there's no change, there's no Jesus. It's so easy in this day to believe in God, but that's not enough. It's so easy in this day, in this environment, to agree with Christ. But when you come to Jesus Christ, either as a child, teenager, or as an adult, you're signing up for a lifetime of change. And you're placing your heart in it. So, this morning calls us to some brutal honesty. No more face-saving. And when you get into that position, you, your heart is in the right position for God to do something with you. Psalms 51, verse 17, David said, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God enjoys a broken and contrite heart. When we get honest with God, God gets active with us. So you may need to cry out to the Lord today, God, I cannot change on my own. I cannot merit forgiveness. I cannot become enough for you to approve of me or to be pleased or to accept me. I cannot control my life enough to magnify you with change. Dear God, I can't do it. And when you come to that helpless point, God can. And God will. Let's pray about it. Holy Father, we see in Jesus a future and a hope. And one day, all of His followers and all the earth will look and love and live just like Him. Oh, but God, in this day, we're not nearly there. Dear God, we need and we want supernatural intervention for godly change. Because right now, some of us are full of disappointment, departure, and decline. Some of us need salvation. Others of us have it, but we need daily rededication. And so we cry to you that in this time you'd have mercy on us. Clarify for us our need and address it by your grace, especially at this time. We're going to sing a song. And when we do, we're going to stand and we're going to ask you to come. We'll have staff here if you need help. We want to help you with your spiritual decision. There's no magic in making your way down the aisle, but if you need to, folks will step out of the way so that you can come. But staff members will be here. 
And when we start singing, we want you to come and share your spiritual need. Maybe you need to know Christ or follow Him in baptism. Maybe you need to become part of this church. Maybe you need some prayer about some changes that you need to make and it's unrelated to any of these decisions. That's fine. Would you quickly stand with me and let me finish my prayer? And we're going to ask you to come. God, would you gain control and glory over this, over these moments, for the sake of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Hey, you come.